Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome back to The Midpoint. My guest today is a long-standing radio and television presenter with one of the most recognisable voices in the game. Adrian Charles started out as a sports reporter thanks to his great love of football and originally joined the BBC on work experience. Since then, he's gone on to host much-loved TV shows like The One Show, Match of the Day 2, Daybreak and The Apprentice You Were Fired. But radio is perhaps where Adrian is most at home. And after hosting numerous shows these days, he's never too far away from a BBC Radio 5 live microphone. He's also an author and his book, The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less, was published in 2022. And my expert today is Matt Pink, who is on Instagram as the better life guy, better underscore life underscore guy, if you want to have a little look for his account. Basically, Matt stopped drinking about three years ago, and his account is a really honest reflection of how that journey has been. I want to talk to him about stopping completely as opposed to moderating alcohol, which is something that Adrian has talked about. Adrian is very candid about the time that he went through at ITV where things didn't quite go so well in his career and how that led to some really big episodes of anxiety and darkness in his life and how he handled fame as well when the one show really took off. He's open, he's honest, and this is what happened when he popped around for a cup of tea. And he's in situ as well, which is a rare honour for me to have you here. How are you? It's a pleasure. I I assumed everybody came here and you sat on your throne and people came from far and wide and descended on you. But uh, no, I'm, I'm very well. You could have had the option of doing this down the line, but you did say to me when I saw you in Wales recently that you wanted to see Kenny because he makes you yeah. happy. Kenny always makes me feel happy. I mean, <laughs> just I don't know. There's just I don't know him well at all, but there's just something about him. I just come away feeling happier than when I when I well, arrive. Well, hopefully you'll leave this experience as well feeling. Well, feeling... I, hope, I hope he has that effect on you. Uh, he does have that yeah. effect on me. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very yeah. lucky. Because um, I wouldn't say that you're a grumpy bloke at all, but you do have a slightly. I've decided it's a slightly suspicious nature. Um, yeah, sort of maybe a bit wary. Although, you know, I get, I can't known as being grumpy and you can kind of end up conforming to your stereotype if you're not careful. Mm. Once it becomes, if you start feeling if it might be your, your USP. I remember when I was doing the one show and there was some story in the mirror and, you know, in that, the second mention bit, my kids were laughing because it described me as the, uh, the, <laughs> The gloomy forty-four-year-old, <laughs> just the word, gloomy. I thought, is that what I look? Do I look just gloomy the whole time? And perhaps I do, but you know, you can, you know. So I, th- I think I, I might be pretending to be gloomy sometimes. You, when I don't you don't feel remember being way. a gloomy kid, for example? No, I, I know I was. I was prone to periods of gloom, but I don't know. Once people, I don't know. I, I, just people sort of expecting me to be a bit curmudgeonly 
to increasingly. So you can end up playing up to that if you're not careful. Yeah, the self-fulfilling prophecy mm. of uh, perhaps not one that necessarily no. lends itself to um, a happy and long life. You know, <laughs> no, because... no, it's not. Well, I mean, it's the power of auto-suggestion, isn't it? If you go around sort of smiling all the time, probably the the, the you know the world's a happier place. But if you go down go around looking a bit grumpy, then I so suppose therapist will tell you that you'll, you know, you'll you'll think yourself into a state of, of grumpiness or so, gloominess. So you're not one of those people who um, kind of got to 40 and thought, at last I'm 40. It wasn't like you had a kind of middle-aged disposition um, as a younger person. No, no. I just, well, I just remember on my 30th birthday, as an old, uh, an old family friend of mine, and who used to go to the football with. In fact, his, his son is one of my closest friends, but the father was a big friend of mine as well. And I remember on my 30th birthday, he said, son, he said, I'll tell you this, 30 to 40 goes by in the blink of an eye. And it it really, I don't know, you know, some sometimes somebody says something to you and it mm. just stuck with me. Mm. And I thought, God, ain't that the truth? And what's worse, 40 to 50 goes even quicker and 50 to 60 even quicker than that. You know, I'm on my way, I'm, I'm on my way to 60 now. But I mean, just briefly, I was talking. A friend of mine. It was the guy who really put me on telly when I first started at the BBC. I mean, you can be, you know, as you will confirm, very often you'll be asked, you know, how do you get to be a television presenter? Well, you only need one thing, really, and that is somebody daft enough to, to put you, you on, on telly. air <laughs> to let you go on telly. I mean, you'll be the best presenter in the world if nobody's going to give you anything to present then you're never going to be able to, you know, you know, no one's ever going to find out how brilliant you are. But anyway, I found a, a maverick guy, Paul Gibbs, an amazing producer, amazing editor, amazing kind of friend. And I went on work experience to the to the BBC uh, on a, and I was a researcher on Business Breakfast and he took a, a shine to me. But he used to put this, after the programme every day, he'd write his thoughts on the programme and put it in everyone's pigeonhole. And... I remember one day he wrote, but don't come in and see me today. I'm pissed off. It's my 40th birthday and I'm not happy about it. And I remember thinking, oh, the poor bloke, the poor, <laughs> poor bloke, 40. Imagine. And I really, you know, I kept a respectful distance from him that day. You know, and Paul, you know, uh, tragically passed away when he was 60, when he was 63. And it, it just sticks in my mind, you know, it, it comes up on you, you know. But now quickly. you look back in your 50s to when you were 40 yeah. and you must think, God, I was a whippersnapper. A spring chicken, yes. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it's yeah, it's all about just trying to make the most of it and just not, you know, I don't know, just enjoy every day and all the other cliches. But great things know. were happening to you in your early 40s. Yeah. You know, the one show came around that yeah. time. I mean, I was just it? getting, you know, I was on... Uh, I mean, the show that Paul got me to present was called Working Lunch. I did that for 13 years on at lunchtime on BBC Two. You know, looking back, I was much the happiest when I was doing that. You weren't wasn't really in the limelight, and and we just I think it was a, an important show in a way. Try to explain business financial stuff to people. Uh, you know, you're just allowed to get on with it. You know, it's like the BBC management which weren't that interested. We kept out of trouble. You know, that that was fine, but then. Everything went a bit mad when I started doing the the Apprentice. You're fired, and then I did Match of the Day too, and then the one show came along, and you know suddenly, I'd been a long time on telly every day without really being famous. Then suddenly everything took off, and it was, it, it was just utterly disorientating and mad, and I just, 
I just look back on it now and just think God, I was just all over the place. I didn't know what was happening. You know, is that a proper midlife crisis? Well, I don't know whether it was. I don't know whether you'd call it a crisis. It was a thing. You know, I just. I don't know. I just. I, I just struggled to. I just struggled to deal with. It. I mean, I was having a fantastic time. Don't get me wrong, but it was. It was sort of. Because you think me up in the happening at the age that it did, you'd have had all this time to prepare for that, yeah. and it didn't. It's not like you were eighteen and suddenly, you know, you remember no, One Direction. No, no. Well, funnily know. enough, I do know a member of One Direction who's at Liam Payne. I know his mum and dad are, are good friends of mine because they're West Brom supporters, and you know, I just often think about him and you know Harry and the rest of them at fifteen or sixteen, mm. you know, having that. But then suddenly. I don't think anything can really prepare you for it. Where is it the scrutiny? Some, is it being a tabloid it's fodder? Scrutiny. It's just tabloid fodder. It's like that, and it's it's partly loving it and partly being frightened of it and partly disliking it. You don't really know where you are with it. And I think when I first started doing working lunch, I was also I was also doing Radio Five Live, which is a really important part of my life. Mm-hmm. I went to the Sony Awards. And Steve Wright was there, and I'd listened to him as a kid, you know, sort of revered him. And he recognised me, and I was I was sort of gobsmacked. And he watched Working Lunch. He really liked it. And we were we chatted away, and I you know, was sort of pinching myself. I'm talking to the great Steve Wright. And at the end, he said, and this was before the one show, before things had gone mad. I was just doing Working Lunch. And, you know, as the conversation rounded off, he said, uh, you know, you're just off air you'll just like in real life as you are on telly. And I went, all right. And he went, he went, very good, very good, very good. He said, in the end, though, you'll go absolutely mad. And I, and I, I didn't know what he meant, but then, you know, 10, 15 years on, I kind of, I kind of knew what he meant because it wasn't really an, you know, I, I couldn't, you couldn't switch off. When, no, well, when I started getting, you know, when I started getting stick when things weren't going well, because I'd, I'd put the sort of the real me was out there. Mm-hmm. I couldn't step back and say, "Well, that's my persona." Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know. I did, I couldn't hide behind that. It was just, you know, it was just me, you know. And and I I think that's what he meant, you know. Mm-hmm. I certainly I, cer- I certainly went. I just certainly you went You should mad. have kept a little bit back for yourself. Yeah, I suppose so. And in a way, I suppose in the end, in the end, I was. But it's just that, I don't know, it just, I mean, I, I, I don't know how people who don't like talking to people cope with being famous. I, I happen to really enjoy speaking to people. And so that's fine. I mean, sometimes I don't. And then Sometimes I can't, you know, I want a bit of privacy and you can't really switch off. But generally, you know, people tell you all sorts of amazing, interesting, amazing, interesting things. So you're talking about the general public coming up and talking to you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you don't like that, Mm, mm. it must be really miserable. So, you know, that aspect of it, I do really love. But I've seen this, I had quite a bit of therapy from this same psychologist for a long time. One time in 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 this clinic, it was in the waiting room. And there, usually, there was no one else in this waiting room. But on this occasion, there was this woman. And, you know, normally if there was somebody there, for kind of obvious reason, there wouldn't be a lot of conversation. But she was saying, oh, I saw you on the, uh, I saw you on the telly. Yeah, I saw you on the telly last night. I went, all right, okay. And um, I was chatting and blah, 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 blah. You know, we were just having a chat. And then she said, uh, oh, well, you seem really nice on telly. 
I went, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you really, you know, if you got to know me, you, you'd know that's not quite right. I mean, I was just joking. Yeah, of course. But I could see that my doctor, shrink bloke, Soren, his name was, was standing behind me. And then we took me off to the room. And he said, why were you, why were you so nice to that woman? And I went, well, I don't know, I just, I just, it just was, because I'm, I just was. And he said, no, really, really think. I said, I'm thinking, I can't, I don't know. I just, I was just being sort being, of, yeah. well, being polite. I was just trying to be nice, you know, because she'd been nice to me. And my, but then he kept going back. And what we got back to, what we got down to in the end was at some level, I was thinking when she gets home tonight, she lives with somebody, she might say, I met that guy today. I want her to say, and that has to elicit the question, oh, yeah, like, what was like? he like? And I want her to say, I was nice to give me a good report. And, and deeper than that, you know, if I predeceased her and it got it got in the papers and she, you know, he, you know, I died and she would, and she said, oh, I met him once. And they said, well, what was he like? And he goes, oh, it was very nice. I want to say very nice. And he said, well, why? Why do you care? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I just do. He said, well, why? And he said, if you've got any idea the pressure you're putting yourself under, but don't, if you're really thinking is, about is that, that right? Because wouldn't most people? Well, I would think so, but he he would say he would say not. I mean, I think a lot of people care less about what people think about them than I do. I think. I mean, I think a lot of people who just don't mind, you know, who just don't care. Has that not diminished at all then as you've got older? Well, it just has a bit. I mean, you know, you can't please all the people all the time, but. Um, does that annoy the people around you who really do, you know, yeah. the very close people? That... Yeah, yeah. And I have got a lot, I've got, I have got a lot of close friends. I don't sort of shed friends. And, I'll, and you know, and sometimes they can think, well, that makes him, you know, you know, because it might, might make me a bit shallow. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think it does. I mean, I've got genuinely do have a lot of friends. I mean, I was out with, I mean, my closest friends, I was at primary school with them in, in, Hagley in near Starbridge in May 19, September 1971. Wow. Right. And now, you know, and I'm still, they're still my closest friends. Still close friends. I mean, and our kids are now, are now adults as well, you know, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing to have such sort so of. So, in a way, doing route. a show like the one show is almost, was almost the worst thing because it's the kind of show that it's, it's all predicated on being really likable to the viewers yeah, in that yeah. kind of show because you're yeah. not there to antagonize them. You're there to make them feel really easy yeah. and lovely at seven o'clock. So, that was playing into your best and worst yeah, kind yeah. of like parts in a way. Yeah, that's right. And it was the end of a lot of the stuff I'd done. You know, I don't know. I, I always, I, I never, I was sort of enjoyed it without being very sort of proud of it in a way. The one show, it was just, you know, every interview sort of three minutes long. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You can get sort of drawn into doing jobs. I think it's a lesson in life. You, your life can take you places which you, you, you're powerless to resist because they're such great offers. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what you should, be this doing. is what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be like a footballer. You know, Man City or someone yeah, come yeah, in for a footballer. Yeah. Although and, you might be having a really great time at West Ham. Yeah, but, yeah. But you oh, should well, go. Yeah, but you, but you, you can't turn it down. The yeah. money comes into it, great opportunity, and it just kind of never works out for you. You know, you're not, you're not quite right. And I mean, that was partly true on the one show. I mean, it would 
definitely true of doing live football, actually, looking back on it, where, I, you know, there was a sort of slight falling out of the one show with the controller um, to do with Chris Evans coming in. and But, I mean, I would have had to sock it up and just do it, you know, Monday to Thursday while Chris did it on Friday, and I didn't bear him any ill will um, or anything. But then, you know, I came in to ITV, and I sort of had to go, and, you know, it was too good to turn down. But in the end, it was kind of the wrong job for me, I think. You know, all the stuff old I did was always slightly, you know, a little sideways. Bit off the Look, track. A bit off the, yeah, mm. yeah. Suddenly doing elite kind of elite football, I wasn't sure. In the end, I don't know, it was just... Did you feel I mean, a bit you know, of a square peg in a round well, hole? Well, I felt that... a little bit, yeah. And you just, I enjoyed the tournaments, but what I found... You know, you you know what it's like to do. You don't know what it's like. You know what it's like to do sort of Champions League football on ITV, where you go, "Good evening, uh, welcome to you know Munich, you know Barcelona, the visitors." What a night we had in store. And I go, Lee, you know Lee Dixon, what do you think? Um, Roy, what do you think? Like, Paul Scholes, what do you think? And then look out of the break, yeah, right, out of the break, out of vision. You know, cl- um, final word from you, Lee. Uh, blah blah blah, and then Clive Tilsley takes over. Then Clive Tilsley probably get you to the break at half time. Then you come out the break, and then Lee, what do you think? Roy, what do you think? Scalzi, what do you think? And There's you've a got pre right, yeah. yeah. And then after the game, same. And then Gabriel would interview the manager in the tunnel that and you then, really wanted to be doing. Yeah, well, yeah, fight, and then. Another break, and then final word from you, Roy, and then come out bang on time. And it was just... Didn't play to your strengths. Well, it didn't play to my strengths. I mean, when when it's that narrow, it just comes down to getting the words out in the right order, which had had never been, you know, had had never been my strong point. But, I mean, the big thing is, was you go into this business in the first place as as a journalist, which, you know, we both are, then you're doing it because you're curious, because you you know you want to ask people questions. Well, that's not re you want to interview people. In other words, well, that's not really interviewing. You're doing that, and I remember, I remember this really came back, really struck me when we did a, a Saturday lunchtime game when Roberto Martinez was manager of Wigan, and they went to Goodison in the cop and hammered them. And there's no pressure on time because there's no ad breaks really to get to on a Saturday lunchtime. And they said to me, oh, do you want to do you want to do the interview with Roberto, the post-match? And so we were in the studio in the corner of the ground. Roberto was in the tunnel, but they sort of piped us through, you know, linked us up. And I think Lee was there and I think Peter Reed and somebody else in the studio with me. And then I had about 10 minutes with him. So, and I knew Roberto a bit because I worked with him on the Euros, I think. So... Had a bit of crack with him, and I bought Lee in and bought Peter, and we had a it's just a good, good telly. a good a good talk. Well, I don't think it was good telly, but it was a, certainly an interesting discussion. I thought, and I just felt the blood flowing back into my veins. I thought I just this is what I love. This doing. is what I love doing, and I just haven't I hadn't done it at all, you know, for ages. You know, for the one show, I mean, a bit on Daybreak, which is a you know another story. Then, but you know, I hadn't really done it at the football apart from when you got a bit more time at um, at the tournaments and so on. And then I went back and I went back to doing Five Live again, you know, and then you got sort of 10, 15 minutes to talk to people. And I really had to learn how to do it again because I was... 
You know, it was like when I was doing the one show, you know, even a conversation at a pub would be tricky. It'd be like, <laughs> question one, yeah, two, three, right, off you go. Right, then on to the next one. It was like speed dating <laughs> or something. So the longer form uh, obviously suits you yeah. as a person. Well, just to, to meet being... a variety of people and just ask them questions. But and Going back to what you said before, though, yeah. about the lesson is, and then you kind of never really told me what the lesson was there. So not everybody's going to be applying this to their lives as television presenters because no. most people listening aren't. So No, I think you've got to think about... I think, well, just if you get, an, you know, an irresistible offer, you know, it might be a promotion at work. I mean, just... I mean, it's an obvious lesson. Just have a good think about, you know, whether but, you, but you should do it or not. Sometimes you know? the grass isn't always greener. Well, sometimes the grass isn't greener. And maybe it's something you got to do and you just do it. And this is the lesson you draw from it afterwards. And what didn't kill you makes say, you stronger. Actually, yeah, going through all of that, we're not all going to always go through our lives doing the right job at the right time, no. are we? You're going to make what you might perceive afterwards mm. as a bit of a mistake or yeah. a wrong turn or that maybe that's not the thing yeah. I should have done. So it's it's what you can take from it, isn't it? It is. But also the counterfactual shows the absurdity of what I'm saying because you know the alternative is not being offered any irresistible exactly. jobs. And which just, you would have been mortified Yeah, at. yeah, which would have yes. <laughs> do you get jealous when, uh, do you have a, a professional jealousy at all about jobs? Do you ever feel, oh, uh, I could be doing that? Yeah, yes. So, yes, sometimes. I just think, I don't know if there's a documentary on there, you know, or something. I think, oh, well, we should have given me that because when you stop being flavour of the month, other people are getting the work. I mean, I mean, the thing what I did, right, for about 12, I'd first working lunch and five life started about 94, 95. And then I got binned by ITV in 2014. I had, for 20 years, basically, I had done live television more or less every day, and sometimes more than once a day. I'd be doing a working lunch, then I'd be doing one show, and we'd be doing The Apprentice, which was sort of ads live, and then football. I'd done it every day for, for 20 years with some success. And then overnight, it just stopped. It just stopped. And, you know, since, you know, we're in 2023 now, you know, since 2014, I've had an earpiece in three times. Really? In all that time. You've only done three live, live TV, TV shows. Live shows, yeah. Yeah. I know you presented, only presented one, I think, maybe two, I can't remember. But, you know, look, I'm not moaning, but, you know, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing about and fame. How quickly then. Yeah. It, can, it can go. It can yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. And you think, yeah, you, 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 th you know, you think... I don't know. You just think you need, it's 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 kind of always going to be like this. There'll be Presumably you've something been to things, do. But you've been no, absolutely no. I can honestly say, in terms of live television, I, I just I haven't really. I can honestly say I haven't. It was like I'd, I'd sort of cooked my goose with Daybreak. That having failed, basically, or I was seen as having failed with it. Then then that was you know, and I think I was sort of a bit holed below the waterline then. But I mean the. the I was much full, much more fulfilled doing what I was doing then, which was speech radio, solo speech radio at the same time as, you know, I was doing working on, on Five Live. So, and then increasingly writing as well. So that was, you know, it was much so, more fulfilling. At, at really. what point you talked about going to, to see a therapist, at what point in all of this did you decide you needed to go? And well, got all the way, you know, all the way through, particularly when I was at, well, particularly when the one show started and all the rest of it, I was just... I was just getting a lot of highs, but getting incredibly down. So I just couldn't, 
you know, not as if I couldn't breathe at times. I mean, I just... Religion became not, important to you. Then, well, it so. did, yeah. But then, yes, it did, you know, and remained so. But then, I, you know, I, I became a Catholic when I was 39. And then I got divorced a year later. So I must have broken all Vatican... That's not in the category, I must have been all Vatican records by, <laughs> by just... They must have looked at who's, who's Who is this? So... So anyway, so like it was all it was all a big, you know, it was all a big, big shake sort up. of a big yeah, just yeah, a, a big shake up all the way through. And I'm really glad I had the religion. I mean, sometimes it made me, you know, you know, I, I acquired Catholic guilt along with the whole, you so, know, the whole thing. So you thing. didn't go to Catholic church as a no, little no. boy? No, no, I had not I I didn't have any of that. My my parents are complete my parents are complete atheists and my and my brother. Well, mum was sort of from Croatia, was born a, you know, was sort of nominally raised a Catholic, but didn't go to church at all. But I was all from somewhere. I was sort of a believer. And I, I don't know, I just got, I went, I started, I went to a Catholic church in West London with a, a mate of mine. I was about 37, 38. And I just kind of felt at home there. I can't really, de- I, you know, there was just sort of men and women in there. I sort of could imagine myself hanging around with somehow. I think it's a very sort of British Catholic thing, you know, a lot of Irish, a lot of drinking, you know, and all. I suppose it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of that going on. But I just, I did. And are you an uh, active member of your church now? Um, yeah, well, I sort of, I go, I, I, I sort of travel a lot. I seem to be somewhere different every so weekend. You find, so you I, find a mass. I try, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll try and go to a mass. Um, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what your experience was, but it struck me that. You know, in everyone's sort of faith story, there's either a good priest or a bad priest in it right at the beginning. And I don't mean bad as in terms of really bad, if you know what I mean. I just think in terms of boring, perhaps a bit unkind. I mean, my mum said she went to a first communion and then she had to go to confession and she didn't know what to confess. She made something and up. They, yeah, and they said, somebody said, make something up. So she made out that she stole some jam. <laughs> and And then... I mean, even then, you know, it's only seven or something, and so there she is in 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 Zagreb at the age of seven, totally bewildered. Well, I'd, it was a sin to steal jam, but it was also a sin to, to lie. lie. And I made it up, and the the priest was a you know, a miserable a miserable old son. I always made sure I'd, I'd as a child going to a confession. I always made sure that I'd told a fib that yeah. week because telling a fib is really that's yeah, a very yeah. very wide term, isn't it? Yeah. It could be anything, couldn't yeah. it? So so I just always said I told a fib. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that and although I've still also always sort of shied away from confession. I know, but um, I, I also found it quite useful yeah because yeah. you know if you had done something yeah. you felt bad about it might have been hitting your sister mm, or whatever yeah you offload it and yeah. um and i all i had to do was say three hail marys and mm. and, and our father and and i could get rid of that yeah, feeling yeah. that i'd you know done something so as a child i suppose it's it's kind of the earliest form of any kind of therapy isn't it that yeah, a child might yeah. go through no, really. no no that, that that's really interesting i mean i didn't have access to that but there was a really significant moment when i i was you know, I was going to the church, and I was there was a non lovely non mayor, Sister Jennifer, and you know, basically teach me when to stand up, when to sit down and kneel, and then you know, looking at the sacraments and all that. And and a friend of mine said, "I'll go and see this an old retired priest, Father Ben." So I went to see him, and this this was the this was the moment because it could all have stopped at that moment if he'd said the wrong thing, but. I, you know, I said, he, he, he said, so what, what's your story then? And I went, it was an old, old Irish guy. And I started burbling on a man and I'm looking at the sacraments and a blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, just forget all that. 
He said 90% of it is just superstition. Ignore all that. I thought, hang on. This is a priest, isn't he? So just ignore all that. He said, look, he said, just, just be still. Just be still and the truth and peace will come to you. And, and then, you know, and I just thought, oh, God, that's just so beautiful. And then, and then he said, you know, I can, I look at you and I think, he said, I can see the Holy Spirit moving within you, not me. I'm going, yeah, whatever. And then I was, mm, all right, you know, why not? Why not? I'll have a bit of that, if you like. But, I mean, he was so kind. He yeah, was so, yeah. you know, it, it was He's sort of. a benevolent of, man. Yeah, yeah. Spirit. And I've met oh. one of, I mean, all sorts of different priests on my travels and some some very good ones and, um, you know, and some some I just can't understand why they're priests. It was, it was interesting, just, just after I lost a job at ITV, I was kind of at a loose end. I was still doing a bit of radio, but then it was like 2015. And I was in, I was in, I was in South Wales, and it was on Ash Wednesday, and I thought, oh, I'll go to Mass. And that was nice. And then the following day, I thought, oh, I'll go to Mass again, a different church. And then I ended up going, as I on my travels, Manchester, London, you know, if in doubt, keep moving. You know, I was just a bit all over the place. But I went to a different Mass every day um, for all of Lent. Wow. But the one thing I couldn't stand is when they were – they just, you, you know, they're so they're sort of, you know, they were representing Jesus on earth. That's a big thing. Look happy about it. I mean, at least be, look, look you know, just look pleased about it. Not you just have open you your given phone your bill. Back to the no, church? I have. I wrote a piece in the tablet about it. I just, and then you, you know, of, of, of the better priests, it's often said, oh, he's very good with people, which seems an absurd thing. It's Again, the counterfactual. <laughs> yeah, what's the opposite? It's like saying, you know, football, he, he's good with the ball. All right, well, that's just as well, isn't it? But you know, there were a handful I met then who were that who were really, um, really exceptional. Yeah. Um, there was one I went to in um, there was a mass I went to in it was I was in Manchester. It was on the um, Berry New Road, North Manchester, huge church, and there were four people oh. in it on a Monday evening, and the the priest came out. And I'd been in similarly sparsely attended masses elsewhere where the priest still went up onto a high pulpit and looked down on us lost souls below. But he just came and sat with us. Yeah. It was a what, real what great made him, experience. What made it uh, a good experience? Well, just the way he was actually communicating. Mm, and he said, he said, I, t I was ordained, he said, 40 years ago, almost to the day, or it might have been 50 years, I don't know, a long time. And he said, I always try and teach every, uh, treat every mass like it's my first or my last. I thought, yeah, that's the right attitude. That's the way to do it. And I was thinking all the, you know, that it just made me realise the secret of success and happiness is, is in drawing satisfaction and joy from, you know, the repetitious, in from the mundane. Because, you know, for me, sort of everything gets boring in the end if you keep doing it. You know, so some, you know, so my attitude has sometimes been bad. You know, it might have been bad, you know, at work, you know, just oh, another football match or another play. I mean, you know, these things are gifts. I mean, every day is a gift, but presenting, you know, whatever you're doing, but, you know, live television, you know, live radio. As a society, we're kind of, we're told all the time, aren't we, that we're supposed to covet certain things. We're yeah, supposed to yeah. Goals, Drive, yeah, goals for this. No, whether, you know, whether it's a, a flashy new car yeah, or, yeah. A, you know, uh, a, a, a bigger house or a better watch yeah. or whatever it is. And all yeah. of that. Means that you're never really going to be no, very you're present. Never, no, you're not. You're never. No, you no. Exactly. Precisely. Pre 
Yeah, that's absolutely precisely what it is. But you think of the successful people are the ones who do it and give it everything every time. And I'm, I'm no Stones fan, but I think about Mick Jagger. Well, how many times has he done Sympathy for the Devil or Satisfaction? And every time. Yeah. It and you see him do it. Yeah. I can't, you know, see him do it now. Yeah. You know, I'd be bored to tears <laughs> if I was him. But he's absolutely given it the whole lot. And I really admire that. It's Mick Jagger, that priest. But maybe, Adrian, he's doing what you were doing with that woman in your therapist's office because he doesn't want anybody to go away yeah, and yeah, say yeah, they've yeah. seen him do yeah, a poor maybe, version maybe. of that. And maybe, yeah. look, that's another, you know, maybe that's a, another form as well as, of, by another the way, form enjoying of madness. It, yeah. You know. But I mean, it's when you cut the, you know, He's, and I'm sure you felt the same with kids when, you know, I see, you know, you think of all the time, you know, when I was kind of living the dream, getting really famous, you know, and I was, you know, I was with the kids, you know, a lot, but not enough really, you know, and you think, you know, the days, you know, you're changing nappies, the repetition of what you're doing, you know, it's it becomes drudgery and you're knackered and you're tired. I just wish I... Somebody had a word with me then, although lots of people did say, look, this doesn't last forever, you know, cherish these times. But you know, I wish I'd really focused on that and enjoying those, going, taking them swimming and, you know, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, a pain yeah, it is yeah. getting the... But actually, to be in that moment, a, a colleague of ours at Five Live, actually, Victoria Derbyshire, oh, yeah. I once heard her saying, I'd gone in to do, you know, when you do the little trail for the next show, yeah, I'd yeah. gone in to do my trail for my show in her show and we, I was waiting to do it and somebody dropped something on her desk that she needed and it was um, a new mum. This this girl that worked on her team was a new yeah. mum and she was talking about the night feeds and Victoria said, which I thought was such a yeah. wise thing, she said, every time your baby cries in the night, just think to yourself, wow, they really need me. How, how, how lucky am I that I'm needed like that by somebody? And she kind of could see the look on this yeah. this tired new mum's face that she well yeah that's another way of reframing yes absolutely uh, yeah. and, and suppose, reframing yeah, yeah and I think that that you're right and if anybody's you know a lot of people listening won't be about to have yeah. babies but they might know people and it is such a, a cliche when you have them and they're little yeah. people go it goes so quickly yeah, and yeah, and yeah. you just can't imagine and so you kind of you, you're almost it, willing it, away yeah. those days and aren't it, you, you are and it happens very quickly. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. My elder daughter, she went for me, couldn't How cross, old are they now? Uh, 23 and 20. But I remember when um, the older one was 11, she went to local primary school. And then, but, you know, at which point she wasn't allowed to cross the road on her own outside the house, you know. But then suddenly, you know, she went to another school, which was a bus, a tube and a bus away. And that was that. I remember getting on a... I was a bit discombobulated because I was doing day breaks. I'd been up at sort of three in the morning or something. I was I was on the I was on the bus somewhere late afternoon, and a lot of kids gone on. I thought, oh, that's Evie's uniform. They looked again. Oh, that is Evie. And then she saw me and she went, oh my god, 
I said, how did that happen? One minute, she can't wipe her ass on her own. The next minute, she's blanking me on public, you know, on public transport. And then, you know, when it came to taking the way to university, I found that appalling. I found that appalling. The emptiness. Um, well, not so much that, because, I mean, they lived, you know, they spent, they lived around the corner with my, with the mom. I mean, you know, that's where their bedrooms were, so to speak, but they, you know, they were, they were in you, and yeah. out of my place. So it wasn't that your house was, or your home was suddenly empty? No, no. I mean, you know, God, what must it have been like for their mother, you know? In, but anyway, I dropped my older off, one off at, at Bristol University. And I met, I just I just started sobbing and I sobbed so much one of my contact lenses came out <laughs> and I was I was I didn't have my glasses so I was scrabbling around in the car looking for the sodding contact lens. Were you driving? Yeah. <laughs> and then when they are and then well I'd stopped, obviously, but then Yeah, but you were then, driving back home. You know, sobbing. when the younger one went Were you oh playing really God. melancholic music? Oh God, well. I didn't need any of that to make me any more emotional. But then when the younger one went just sort of last year, I found that so I found, you know, I just found that incredibly hard as well. You know, that, I mean, I just, I think we kind of made a mistake. I mean, I, I was lucky with my kids. They're both, you know, you don't, don't you know, really enjoy university and, and so on. But I think what we say to kids when they're about to go off to university, we say, uh, you know, you, oh, you'll have a brilliant time. Stupid thing to say. It comes from a good place. But it's a stupid thing to say because, you know, there's this expectation that, you know, you will have a brilliant time. He said, well, you're four weeks in and it's a bit sort of okay or you're finding it a bit difficult. You don't have a brilliant time. You think there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and and there is, there is, I don't think you ever do anything as difficult in your life. When you're, you're bunged in with a load of people you don't know and compulsorily told to have a, a fantastic time. And that brings us actually quite nicely on something I really want to talk to you about, yeah. which is alcohol, because alcohol is so much part of that. Because yeah. if you're a student, I turned up at, at university and I wasn't a big drinker. And if you yeah. can't I, I kind of that. jump yeah, into yeah. that culture straight away. I, I agree. I agree. I said to my, you know, when the daughter, my kid, you know, do drink and weren't massive drinkers. But I said, I said to them, what do you do if you don't drink? You know, they see, and they said, I'm going to clear. I just don't know, and that's a real. I think that's a real tragedy. I've written. I've wrote a, quite a well, bit you, about that you, in the book. You but... have brought um, your your book with you here, "The Good Drinker" by Adrian Charles. You've had a kind of on-off relationship with alcohol for well, a while. Yeah, well, it's you? not. Well, it's been Is sort it of more on. on. No, no. Well, I'm just don't. I mean, actually, I think that's one of the key points. You don't have to about have it. Or no, it's not. It's you know we. We constantly see this. We constantly see drinking as an on or off mm. thing. And that's because of the nature of, you know, what we know as alcoholism. It's got a binary thing. Either you've got a problem mm. or you haven't. And I, I just I just don't I, I just you don't I, subscribe I, to I, that. I don't see it like that. I mean I think everyone I think it's much you know, I think I think because we got this idea of the alcoholic as somebody who can't function. You know, can't yeah. function waking up in skips and mm. or whatever. Mm. Now, and if you don't conform to that, and very few do, you think, well, I haven't got a problem. I'm not this thing called an alcoholic. I'm fine. But, you know, I wasn't fine. You know, I was just too good at it. I was drinking a huge amount without what, ever what getting you, into what trouble. What was your kind of... Well, I was drinking easily, getting on for 100 units a week, easily. Yeah. And not waking up with hangovers? No, never. No. I, I played I, I played golf one time at some ex-Tory MP at some golf day, and he said... I told him I was doing this documentary about drinking, and he said, oh, I don't drink much. I'm blessed with hangovers. And that's exactly <laughs> the right way of looking at it. 
you know, you can be you can be sort of too you can be you can be too you can be too good at it. So I think I think a lot a lot of I just think a lot of damaging stuff happens when people are saying, Well, I'm not I'm not an alcoholic and sort of get defensive about mm-hmm. it. That look, if somebody wants to call me an alcoholic, that's fine. I don't I would I wouldn't use those words because I don't think, you know, if you're smoking eighty a day, you're not a you're not a smokeaholic or you're not a heroinaholic. But you're not, but not I doing would stuff say, that's good for you. No, but I would say, you know, you it's on a spectrum. Alcohol is addictive. Mm. If you drink regularly ten or twenty units a week, you're a little bit addicted. Mm-hmm. You know, you're drinking fifty units, you're more addicted. You're drinking a hundred units or more as I was, then you are dependent. Mm. You know, and and just you know, and just to see it like that and and address it. And you know, I think a lot of people are drinking themselves into a. This is idea that you. It comes with this idea of being an alcoholic or you're not. Where that, I think, at some level, people think it's because it's a disease, like a almost like a genetic thing, mm-hmm. that you will know immediately whether you're an alcoholic or not. You'll have one drink at the age of eighteen, and then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll wake, you'll wake up in a in a wheelie bin. A, a day later, you know, it's not like that. You can mm. drink yourself into Towards, that level well, of because your tolerance go, goes up. And up. now, yeah. th- this is where I just had a, a, one of those kind of eureka moments where I think, well, actually, this might be where in midlife women are in the same to use the same kind yeah. of um, ideology as your Tory MP friend, or to use the same perverse logic that actually women are blessed with. Um, when our hormones diminish, our yeah. our ability quite often to process alcohol goes down. So you find women talking about midlife. They can't just they just cannot drink alcohol in the same yeah. way because even one glass of wine gives you a hangover. So men obviously don't have that same. Well, I think some do, some don't, but we would we wouldn't have that. That's not specific, quite in the same dramatic that specific way. Thing you speak most women I, I know of my kind of age and, and above talk about that that you know you just can't drink the same quantities anymore, yeah. and uh, and therefore you then kind of you just get off the habit, yeah. you know, because it's, yeah, just, yeah. it's not something that. I mean, what... You said you used in another context. You said use the word reframe, and I think reframing is a word I keep coming coming to. And it's about I think a real important thing is always look at ways to reframe. So alcohol was, you know, for me. Now, having done the book, you know, do lots of interviews. So he said, "What are your tips?" And you know, what people want is well, drink that, away. but don't drink that, yeah. and you know, and um, don't drink on every other Thursday and or whatever it is. Now, there's a place for that, you know, but it's more about reframing. It's more about thinking. Just I mean, the big reframe for me came when I was, I was just idly thinking how much I'd drunk in my life since I was fifteen. I'm mid fifties, and and I was. I worked out that if you lined up every drink I'd drunk in my life, it would be about four miles long, looking at all those drinks, right? So, now that's shocking enough, but that's not the reframing of it. The reframing is looking at all of those drinks and thinking, how many of those did I really enjoy? Did I really want? Did I really need? Did I get anything out of? And, and I don't think it's a third. Most of the time, you're just drinking because you drink, you just mindlessly exactly, and the opposite to mindless is mindful. Mm. So really think about so what you're drinking. I mean, there was a guy came up to me at the Albion. We were away at Birmingham on a Friday night, and it was just after this documentary had gone out, and everybody was stopping me and asking me about the drinking. And I, I, I had this sort of a ad hoc kind of seminar um, at the at, in the away end at halftime, and this big black country bloke came down, clambered over the seats. He goes. I drink 
60 pints of lager a week. He goes, now, do you think that's too much? <laughs> right. Now, ludicrously, I started adopting that genial G- GP term. Well, you might think about cutting down a little bit. I thought, of course, it's bloody too much. But what I said to him was, look, look, if you're enjoying every single one of them, if you're loving the bones of all 60 of those pints, then who's anybody to tell you? Who's anybody to tell you not to drink them? And, and the, and, well, fair point, fair point. And, I, and what I came to was realising that the, the the only drink that matters is the first the drink. The first one. <laughs> the first one it, it achieves a change in emotional state. Mm-hmm. And that is because you're addicted, actually, because you've gone into withdrawal and then you have one, it, you get that change in emotional state. The second one, less so. Every subsequent drink is just a vain a futile attempt to, to recreate the, the feeling that the first gave you. And when you really think about that, yeah, when you yeah. reframe. Yeah, that is so true. Then yeah. you, then you, you, you know, then if you really sort of focus on it. And you've t- it you talk sense. about this in the book, obviously. I talk about that in the book, but also another really important reframe is the recommended maximum safe level of drinking is 14 units a week, which is, you know, probably about 10 glasses of wine and seven pints of weak, weakish beer. Now, if you say to any drinker, try this, right? Any drinker you come across, you know, committed drinker, and we all know, say, how many of all drinkers, what percentage of all drinkers are drinking 14 units or less, right? And the answer you'll normally get is none or 5%. The truth is, it's 70%. The vast majority of drinkers are not drinking. Are, are drinking safely within yeah. that fourteen units, yeah. but because of the power of social norming mm. and the industry like it like that, yeah. perversely, you'd think they'd be saying most drinkers are drinking safely, but they don't make a noise about it because they want everybody thinking that everybody else is drinking loads. Yeah, yeah. And that reframe is important. Now, you know, if you're a big drinker, you can you can tell me the fourteen units, you know. The science behind the 14 units is bollocks if you want. It's not, but if you want, if I. But what you can't tell me is that you can't sit there and say, look, everybody drinks as much mm-hmm. as me. Because they simply Because don't. it's just balls. Well, now feels like a really good time to bring on today's expert, who is Matt Pink, founder of Dry App. And uh, he's also written a best-selling book, Better Me, Better You. And Matt, it's great of you to come on The Midpoint. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, Adrian, uh, amongst other things, has talked there a bit about how he tried to moderate his drinking. That was the way he decided to go after various periods of you know, coming off alcohol and then trying to work out a better way of coming down from about 100 units a week. Your approach was complete abstinence. So take us back to the point where you decided to do something about your drinking and what kind of a drinker were you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, my story goes way back and it's quite in depth, so I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. But I was a very, what I would call, regular drinker. So uh, I've always worked in central London in sort of the party scene, the fashion world. Uh, and so I was kind of drinking sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'd have a few on Sunday afternoon. And I did that for a period of years. More sort of pressure came around, you know, trying to keep up with myself, if you like, in terms of what I was earning and what I was doing. My go-to, I suppose, for escape, my go-to for comfort, my go-to for everything, happy, sad, good, bad, whatever it was, was becoming alcohol. 
And so the, you know, I, had a, I had a tragedy in my life where unfortunately my son died in 2013. Um, and that kind of made me think, okay, you know, I, my go-to now has to be alcohol because everybody around me was crumbling. That led me down a path of, uh, of destruction really because I, I was then drinking even more than normal. Everything became a bit worse. I was getting a bit mm. fatter and a bit more unhealthy and a bit unhappier and mental health was affected quite bad. I started to get like ailments. I started to get dry skin. I started to get heartburn, acid reflux. I started to really feel sluggish and my sleep was getting affected. And, and one day, um, I just decided to take a few uh, a break. I tried to moderate for it, I have to say, for a, probably a number of years, um, and I found it exhausting. Trying to decide, will I drink? Won't I drink? How much will I drink? Will I go there? What time? How will I get home? All these so you're questions. thinking about it all the time. All consuming, and then obviously there's the actual drinking, which takes the time. Then there's the recovering from drink, which takes the time, and then you're thinking about when you're gonna drink again, and you kind of spend most of your life just thinking about drink. So then I I took a two weeks two a two week break, and I was like. Wow, well, everything is so much better just in two weeks. I felt incredible. I was sleeping better. I had more energy. I started going for a run. And over a period of time, I realized quite honestly that there's no competition. I'm very ambitious in life. I've got a lot to give. And all I'm doing by drinking is just holding myself up, taking longer and making it much more hard work. So the lockdown came around. And it was my sort of chance. This is my chance to get out because everything around me is closed. All the bars of the West End are shut and I can kind of reinvent myself because I don't know how long I'm going to be stuck at home for, but this is my chance to stop drinking. And so I did in April 2020 and it's been three years next week. Congratulations. I, thank you very much. And it's just been the most incredible thing I've ever done. And that's why I've now dedicated my whole life to helping people to take a break from alcohol or to go completely alcohol free, whatever kind of they choose. I think it's interesting because obviously this podcast is called Midpoint, that it does seem to kind of come to a head for a lot of people in midlife. And, and I, you know, I think there's obviously reasons why that is, because for most people, it's been decades of drinking. And then you're looking ahead to a future thinking, well, you know, is this just going to keep going on? And so people evaluate their relationship, don't they, with alcohol? Do you feel, because a lot of people... A lot of people don't drink too much. You know, a lot of people will have a drink every couple of weeks. Or and, and for those people, this might be a chat that, while it would be interesting, has kind of no, you know, resonance with them. But I think there will be a lot of people listening who, who really get what you're talking about. Is it possible, do you think, for those people who were at the levels that you were at to be one of those every few week drinkers? Or do you feel that, you know, it's, it's just not possible? You've, got to, you've just got to cut it out. I think everything is possible and I definitely don't want to dismiss that and people will try it. But I think in the case of Adrian and other people, you know, it'd be interesting to see how it gets on in five years time, because like I said, mm. it, it depends how much time you want to give that because it's a genuine thing. When, when people get to the level that, that like I was, where that it's affecting them physically and mentally, I mm. think it's very, very difficult to then moderate that and take it right mm. back and strip it right back without mm. removing it. Because most of these ambitious people that want to get on in life are all or nothing people. And they're, all, mm. they're always the most successful people as well, by the way, because they've mm. got so much to give. And once they get hold of something, they go and run with it. Mm. Um, so I think there are people in the world for sure. I know some people in the world that can just go and have a glass of wine every few weeks and they're fine and they're very happy and content in their life. I think the people that resonate with me the most are the people that actually have squashed that ambition and really want to get on and actually find them find themselves in this constant cycle of doing a diet that doesn't work, going to the gym but it's not making it mm. stick, mm. putting on weight because they can't figure out why. The mental mm. health shot to pieces, but they they don't know why because they're eating the right foods and they're going to the gym but they're still 
can't work mm. out why they don't feel mentally. Because they're consuming 80 units of alcohol a week. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And it's, what's mad for me is I see people online that have got millions of followers, that big health and fitness people that go and show stuff on Saturday night at a party, drinking, drinking, drinking. And on a Tuesday, they'll put, a, they'll put an upset post up, you know, a story saying, oh, I feel so low today. I'm not sure why. And I'm like, well, I, I, I know why. And I'm not I even tell you. It. So it's just fascinating, really. Do you know what I like about your account? I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I like the fact that you also talk about coping ways, you know, ways to wait. And you said for the first year you basically tried to avoid the party. And that was the way you kind of got yourself into a different headspace. And I think that's really important because it's not going to be easy to immediately go to a party where everybody else is drinking and you're the only sober one. But eventually you can get to that stage. And I've got a really, really good friend, a guy who hasn't drunk for 12 years now, who is the last person to leave every party I've ever seen him at. And I I'm always amazed at how brilliantly he, I don't want to say brilliantly he does. What I mean is he offers a lot at that party. You know, he's, he's not kind of somebody sat there just killing time, kicking his heels, waiting to go. So it is completely possible. Although I have to say on nights when I go to parties and I'm not drinking, people are idiots. And uh, <laughs> you see, you see people that you thought you knew really well in a different light. So you might have to be prepared for that. But that you talk about all that and about friendships and the people who kind of suddenly disappeared and the people who stayed with you. And I think that's, the reality, it's really important. You don't dress it up, Matt. No, it's the truth, isn't it? And this is why people say to me all the time, like, I don't know how you do so much content. I don't know how you deliver such a high energy all the time. Because I just tell my story. I just factually tell him what happened in my life. I've just got back from a stag do with 18 people skiing in Chamonix. And I've documented what I did to prepare for that. I've documented how it was. And I documented when I came back from it. And loads of people have resonated with that because you can translate that to going to a wedding, going to a birthday, going to a Hindu, going to a stag do, whatever it is. Um, exactly. I just tell the journey because also it's nice to be able to talk people through being three years deep into this journey now I can now factually say year one was about staying away from everything reassessing who I was Re year two was about rebuilding and rediscovering who I actually am because you go through life and you walk into a new job you've got to become a new person you even going back to your school you want to join a group of girl mates you've got to become like them and you sort of be build these shells like an onion and actually what happens when you stop drinking is you're just left with, you know, with all these different layers to unpeel to figure out again, who am I? And that takes a period of time. And now, year three, I'm kind of like, okay, I, I've got rid of the booze. I know who I am. I know what I want to do with my life. I'm giving back to people. And now it's just keep sharing and keep sharing. Because mm. I don't know what year four, five and six are going to look like, but I, I'm, I'm no. going to be honest about it the whole What way. about relationships? Relationships has been like a, a massive change for me. And again, people get people are scared of that because when people think about giving up drink, they obviously, everybody they know around them drinks. And so that is a part of it. What I would say is 75% of the people that I drank with disappeared on the spot. Um, and that's kind of a fact. But I would say out of, out of those people, half of them three years later have come back. And I think it was an initial shock and initial they don't know how to deal with, i don't know how to deal with it i'm probably being cold they're being cold there's a bit of resistance there therefore we just leave each other um, but it's been really nice to like welcome those people back we've met for lunch for coffee for breakfast we've gone for runs mm -hmm. some of them have ended up giving up drinking which is why they sort of ran away in the first place because it's a little bit like holding a mirror mm, holding up. a mirror up to somebody yeah so yeah th those relationships have changed massively you know my relationship with my ex-wife um, who we lost our son that that's 
that ended and I'm now remarried, but I have a great relationship with her. We have a great relationship as a blended family, which is something that I don't think many people can say because again, no, no, no drinks involved. So it's, it is what it is, it's authentic. Well, Matt, thank you so much for for sharing a bit more with us today on The Midpoint. And I would recommend if anybody is interested further in kind of pursuing a sober journey or just looking at the way that they drink, that they go to your account and go to your app because um, it's it's definitely there. There is a gap in the market, I think, that you are managing to, to kind of fill there because um, it's a realism that you managed to portray. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, all my Instagram stuff's where it's at, so Better Life Guy. I'll see you there. Cheers, guys. Better Life Guy. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. All of this you've described are kind of very well, the, you know, the madness of your extraordinary fame that happened to you after kind of ticking along nicely and enjoying a job and then yeah. religion and your journey with alcohol and then also a later life diagnosis of ADHD. Why did you go looking for that? Well, I had a, 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 I was having a really bad time and I had some cognitive behavioural therapy, which is, you know, as I understand it, it's not about, you know, looking so much at your it's a bit of this, but not looking at your childhood or, you know, an experience you had in the playground at the age of eight, you know, that's traumatised you for life. And I'm, I'm not knocking that, but it's more about coping strategies. But this woman had been a GP for 20 years. She was very good. And she said, have you ever been tested for uh, for ADHD? And then, as it turned out, I had three years before by this psychiatrist. And as I remember it, I went to this clinic. It was suggested by somebody I go. And I saw this bloke privately, and at the end of two sessions, he said, yeah, I think you probably have got ADHD. Um, you might want to look at medicating it, but you take something for high blood pressure, so you need to be careful with the medication that we give. Come back and see me sometime. And then I got a bill for like 1,600 quid the following day, and I thought, private medicine gone mad. It's absurd. And I just forgot about it. But then the CBT woman asked me to get the notes from the clinic. So I called the clinic and they sent the notes and in the notes was this six page letter from the psychiatrist to me from three years before which I'd never got I'd never got it the hard copy and I'd never got it by email and in it I mean it was a brilliant letter it just said I can see the root of all of your issues really I think is ADHD and you read blah 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 and he gave me this book Um, He recommended this book to read called Deliverance from Distraction. And are they the two pages you you sent me? Yeah, yeah. As soon as I read this book, everything in it, I mean, it was, I I remember where I was. I was sitting in a pub, actually, just I was picking up a read. And I was just like, I thought, am I I on, you know, am I on some camera here? Wait to see my reaction. This is absurd. How It just, right down to the most absurd things. I mean, this doctor said he had this wonderful the, the the psychiatrist who wrote it this american guy who had adhd and he said he had this compunction with certain people he would get he, he said sometimes i'm talking to somebody i'm having a really nice conversation over a glass of wine and sometimes i just get this urge throw to throw wine. the wine in their face <laughs> and it's not because I'm, I'm having a perfect i've got nothing against them i just suddenly it's like i suddenly get tormented but what if what if i did that that would be mad start thinking that and I actually had exactly that. I mean, that was one very narrow little example. And I think it was Andy Townsend. You when I first met Andy Townsend, yeah. <laughs> well, I just sat and I, 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 text, I, I just had to text him. I said, look, bear with me here. This is random as hell. I've just got to share this with you. 
And Andy being lovely, you know, we just don't talked worry about, about it, yeah, Adrian. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. worry. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but, so, so these aren't necessarily this ch- checklist is not necessarily the things that people think of. When well, they think that of that is what I mean. That wasn't on the the yeah, checklist, no. so to speak. But what happened? I read this. I read this book. Tell us the name of the book again. It's called "Delivered from Distraction" or "Deliverance from Distraction." I think I can always get it. I always, uh, I, I sort of always get the title. You get distracted right. and but, yeah, the distracted, title. exactly. But then. I mentioned, you know, this sort of diagnosis and to a three, but my PA was a woman in her sixties in who was in Starbridge. My daughter, a younger daughter, who was sixteen at the time, and a friend of mine, Paul Connolly, a, a TV producer from West Belfast, who's a lively character. All three of them very cynical people, and they all went now nah, bollocks. And then I, I showed them two pages from this book where it outlines the, you know, classic symptoms of ADHD. And they all reacted the same. Just closed the book and said, yeah, that's you. Go on, off you go. Go and get it uh, get it sorted. And it was... And what know, did that mean? What did getting it sorted mean? Because I well, imagine like a no, lot... Of, what address it. Well, they right. mean get it sorted. They because address a lot of people it. who have adult um, diagnosis of ADHD recognise that a lot of the attributes uh, that yeah. is actually, they're actually quite positive. Well, so, yeah, some are. Yeah, some are. And, and some but obviously, aren't. But you were looking for answers that what I was so looking I for answers. The negative yeah. things were, yeah. you were hoping to explain. Yes, I think. Yeah, well, it was more about optimizing the good bits and and dealing with the bad bits and just sort of making the most of yourself through, you know, thinking about it, coaching, therapy, and the medication. You know, re- the medication. You know, really helped. You know. So did it, you go on the medication? Yeah, I went went on the medication, and I mean, the risk with it is that it increases can increase your blood pressure, and I went from thirty milligrams, and then had to go my blood pressure test went to fifty milligrams, then went to seventy milligrams, which was a lot. It's more than I'm on now, but even then, I went back, and my blood pressure had actually gone down. So it had just taken because you because you it, probably were a little bit less stressed. Well, yeah, it had just taken it had just you know it had just taken something away, and I gained more on the swings and I lost on the roundabouts, and it and it just really helped. The the more important thing bit is sort of the coaching. I think the words coach. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, just the strategies you have to work on, and you can and you can, you know, I can be a bit lazy about that because you're. You're sort of like what? addicted to the buzz of. I mean, just, I mean, just can be as basic as like what that priest said to me in another context: mm-hmm. stop, be still, think, reframe. You know, not you know, do one job. We'll do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, and literally. So what I need to do, I need to go. I said, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend the next five minutes doing this. Sometimes even I'm going to spend the next 30 seconds doing this. It can be that narrow. And I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to be trying to write something. And then halfway through that, suddenly, oh, I've got to cook that. And then realizing something's broken. And so I start fixing that. And then, I mean, classically, if I'm not careful, there'll be 20 unfinished jobs done, you know, within within an hour. So. How how was your ADHD impacting your relationships and your... Well, I, mean, I just think it made me incredibly... I think it could make me incredibly difficult to live with. I think a lot of relationships probably didn't work because of that. Also, you know, unmanaged, it leads to terrible anxiety and, you know, depression, really, you know. Because people with ADHD who haven't had it diagnosed are just not completing things. What you go... And- you're not completing and you're in a you're in a constant state of high adrenaline. You need a buzz all the time. You're constantly late. And I think 
was constantly late in a way because I needed the buzz of, will I get there? Won't I get there? You know, what's going to, you know, all, everything was just about, you know, and, you know, Adrenaline. Anxiety, adrenaline. Mm. And it was going to constantly walk around with this feeling of butterflies in my stomach. It was like watching the Albion and we're one nil up and it's the last minute of injury time and the you know and the and the and the um you know the opposition have a free kick and they might score. That level of anxiety and excitement. But and it a all constant the all the time. And it it was sometimes it was fear, sometimes it was excitement. But it was it wasn't wholly unpleasurable by a long chalk. How did you sleep? I don't know. We don't know. I, I didn't sleep particularly well, and and then I'd go along like that, and then then I'd just completely crash, and I just went blank, and I'd spent days just could barely move. Something I just I mean just was walking once. Yeah, that would that was happening. That was happening when I worked at ITV. It happening. I mean, it happened a lot, and I really. I just, I remember, I, I knew it was happening when I could hear myself breathing. And I could hear myself breathing. And I said, just walk, just keep, just put one step in front of the other. And that was, that was, that was, that was been quite that frightening. Was fr- it was quite frightening. I had a lot of kind people around me. I remember I was in, actually in Rio at the World Cup. I remember it was sticks in my mind then. I had about a week of it then. Did you? Mm. I remember Tony Pasta, who, who, yeah, yeah. um, you know, yeah. did a lot of successful podcasts now. Rest his history and all that. Mm. Tony was incredibly kind, incredibly nice. He just walked around with me, not saying anything for hours on end. You know, I was lucky. I was sort of surrounded with sort of people like that. I mean, it, I mean, I was never. You know, I was just dead. Really, I wasn't. I, mean, I didn't become aggressive or unpleasant. I just became utterly withdrawn. Did, so, did you? Were you t- taken off shows? No, no, no. Well, no. At, at its worst. But really bad. The only time I was all right was literally say, doing a radio show. And you know that doing a solo speech radio show for two or three hours is really hard. You know, you you it's, it's, it's the hardest yeah. thing you can mm-hmm. do really mm-hmm. because things different things are happening. You've got to you brief yourself for one live interview while you're actually doing one yeah. at the time. It's hard. But I remember I'd be going like, can I? Lick? I was thinking, can I get into work today? Yeah, I'll get in there. I'm getting this. Can I do this program? I don't know. Then it start, and I'll be fine. And then it finish, I'll be fine. And then literally five minutes later, I'd just be just How dragging awful. my arse along. Awful. It must have been quite frightening as well to think, where is this going to end? Yeah, yeah. You know, and how? then I just thought, you know, just. I mean, just once I had a friend who said, just look, it's just a feeling. It will pass. And that, again, in terms of a reframe, oh, yeah, you know, just, yeah, it's just a feeling. It is just a feeling. And it won't be, it sounds obvious, but then if you really think about it, this then, will pass. But then, yeah, no, but will you just pass. don't know I'll if just, it will, no, you, I, know, I suppose. I know, so, that, I know. so that's why you have got the the diagnosis and yeah. you have altered yeah. things in your life because of it. So you look back to that 2014, that World Cup, wasn't yeah, yeah. it? And where you are now, nearly 10 yeah. years later, do you feel like you're in, a, you know, a much better? Yeah, I'm feeling in a much, you know, much better place. It's like the challenges fulfilled. Yeah, and you're, I'm, you've I'm remarried as well, remarried, which yeah. is and, which and is the ultimate sign of optimism. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, 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 and that's great. And she's very understanding, and she deals with it sort of. Had you already very addressed well. it before you? Slightly, just it was literally. In fact, the, I met her on the Friday and I started taking the medication on the Monday. So I remember, <laughs> I remember I just got it that time. But anyway, but, um, did you say so tonight good, yeah. I'm like this on yeah, Monday? Yeah. I'm <laughs> different, different, yeah. But the, um, 
I think it's a great it's a great exercise that I sort of worked out with my CBT one, which I think is I find it really soothing. Is if I do a lot of walking, you know, to, uh, walking just to get about in the city, but also out in the open. But say walking just around town, I do this thing where I just if I'm feeling a bit just starting to, you know, you know, you feel the, the idea of something, I feel young, yeah, feel sort of the anxiety, the throbbing, the you know, just I feel that sort of happening. That's clear my mind. So I go, I walk for. Let's say I walk for 50 paces and I just observe, just notice what's happening on the floor, the pavement, that shape here, that shape there. So do 50 paces of that. And then 50 paces of anything growing above ground, a bush, a tree, a, a budley or some weed at the top of an old building. Just look at what's growing. And then my favourite one actually is always, for the next 50 steps, the built environment. You look at that fence, I think, blimey, it must have took some skill to build to keep it straight. Then you look, if you just look up and then you see the like the cornicing on houses, it, you know, you just, and then I spent 50 paces just observing people and animals as they go around. And then 50 paces looking at cars and buses and bikes or whatever. And then 50 paces just looking at the sky. And then sort of go back to the beginning and maybe do it again or not. I find that really... It gets you back uh, just, into, it gets me into, back your into body some almost. kind of zone and zoom and into some kind of zone and just you know just just observing the world you know yeah, here, here we yeah. are. Well, I think that's a, a beautiful takeaway for anybody listening. Actually, the fifty pace. The well, you can do ten pace. paces, you can do twenty, you can do fifty, you can do it to time. I mean, another one is that originated from something I used to do with the CBT one. If you're in a room and there are if you get five or six different noises going on so one might be a tap dripping one might be a clock ticking one might be a radio switch to white noise one might be your tinnitus actually is quite useful one might be car noise outside and just switch from one to go go for a minute of one a minute to the other and then maybe 10 seconds each or something just I mean, the point of the exercise is to show you can switch your thinking, you can switch your focus to certain things. But I use it for a slightly different thing. But I think, yeah, it's yeah, it sort of helps me. Adrian, I could I could sit and chew the fat with you on all all things uh, midlife learnings, yeah. reframing, which I think is the word of the episode. Yes, thank you so so much. Not Thanks at for all. your time and um, and your wisdom and your learnings because that's what it's all much. about, isn't it? Yes. It would, yes, it would seem to be. Yeah, never stop. I was just talking to a builder the other day about getting some work done, and I said something I didn't understand or something he didn't understand. And he goes, he just texted me, he goes, All right, got it. He goes, Every day is a school day. Yeah. I've never heard that expression Have before. No, I haven't. And I've been, and I've been using it sort of every day since. Yeah, went, no, yeah. I love it. I, I overuse that, I think. Yeah. Anytime, anytime I kind of mm. learn. And, uh, and I think keeping asking questions as well, because we don't know the answers, yeah, do we? No, exactly. I mean, it's not what you know, it's what you want to know. That's yeah. the, you know, the That's key the key. Thing. So many lines we can use for yeah. the advert for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you. I knew that I had to have Adrian Charles on the midpoint because he's just been through so many different things and he's so honest, so open, uh, whether it's talking about drinking, religion, how he dealt with fame. And I certainly wasn't disappointed in listening to him there. And he seems to be heading in the right direction in his life. Thank you very much as well to Matt 
Pink for coming on and telling us a bit more about his journey of sobriety. Obviously, Adrian has gone for moderation and Matt is really positive about how his life has changed since he stopped drinking in 2020. I find it really interesting, the different ways of coping with alcohol in midlife, whether to drink or not. It's your choice, but there are some great people out there encouraging and supporting whatever you decide to do. We've got lots more content coming your way, including some more in-depth chats with our experts. So do let us know if there is a particular topic or subject you want us to cover. You can post on our Facebook group, The Midpointers, or message me on my personal Instagram at Gabby Logan. Thank you to Spiritland Productions for putting The Midpoint together. And of course, thank you to you for listening. I'll catch you next time. Thank you.